0: Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good morning. It's good to see you on this cold morning this morning. I'm grateful we can gather together in a warm place to sing the Lord's praises and to study his word together. Carmen, we just want to echo what's already been said, that our hearts are heavy with you with the news of Cancer week. but you're in our prayers. We love you, brother. We are your community. We're your family, and we're going to walk this journey with you. We're praying for the Lord to heal you and raise you up in this. But no, no we're here and we know we love you. So and you have our prayers through this. Well, friends, we live in an age of social media, don't we? It is everywhere and it changes things. Social media changes how we communicate, changes how we relate to one another. And social media has changed how we use language in some ways. Languages evolve over time and social media has brought about changes in understanding of words. In particular, the word follow has a very different meaning now than did in the past because of the rise of social media. If you say you follow someone now, that means you took about one second of your life, you clicked on a button, and now you get occasional updates on your news feed about their ideas or what they did or maybe what they ate for dinner last night. But the point of that, though, is following people today requires very little cost and very little commitment. Following people today means we see these glimpses into people's lives, but our lives are relatively Unchanged as a result of it now social media is not a bad thing I use it The church uses which if you do not know we have a Facebook page for the church Which I we just updated that so if you've not found it, it's okay You can even pull out your smartphone now scroll over to Facebook and do Gateway Baptist Church Like us and follow us so all the updates come to you so it's okay You can do it in church if you haven't done it so you don't forget More's coming so will be on Instagram and Twitter and all that pretty soon That's also it's not bad to have that it's a way to communicate but realize when we talk about following Because of social media, we think of very little cost of commitment. We follow teams, we follow stars, we follow TV series, we follow people online. And it requires very, very little from us. But 100 years ago, follow meant something really different. And back in the Bible times, follow meant something even more different than that. And with that in view, let's turn to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1. So we continue to work our way through, we're going to see something about following this morning, and it's very different than what we think of in social media now. Just a reminder of where we are in the Gospel of John. We saw introductions so far. We saw several weeks ago just an overview of the whole book. The overview of the whole book is John is writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first 18 verses of John. This is the introduction from John the Apostle to his book, where he's kind of setting the stage for us of what he's trying to do. And in that introduction, we saw that Jesus is the eternal king. He's the eternal king who came. He came so that we might become children of God. He came that we might have grace upon grace. He came to rescue us. And then we saw last week, when we get into the content of the book, where the story of the book really begins in verse 19. It began with John the Baptist. Remember, John the Apostle is writing this book and records first John the Baptist here. If you remember from last week, John the Baptist lived to exalt Christ. We saw in his attitudes, we saw it in his words, we saw it in his ministry. Everything was about him making Christ known, known to all. And so that's kind of where we have picked back up. We're in the first week of Jesus' kind of public introduction, if you will. Last week we saw chapter, or days one and two of the week where John the Baptist was introducing who Jesus is. Today we're going to be in days three, four, and five. ...of that same week as people begin to understand who Jesus is. And our story today continues where we left off last week once again with John the Baptist. So we're going to pick up today in chapter 1, verse 35. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? The words will be on the screen or you can look at it in your copy of God's Word as well. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God... The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He, Jesus, said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. for It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him Instead of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, we are thankful that you've given it to us. Thank you for your kindness to us, that you've not left us without revelation, but you've revealed yourself to us. And God, I pray this day that you would open our eyes in new and deeper ways, Lord Jesus, to who you are, to what it means to follow you in all these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as you look at this text, this, if you will, calling of the first disciples, I want you to see one main idea throughout this text. It's simply this that those who believe in Jesus follow him and invite others to do the same. Those who believe in Jesus, follow him and invite others to do the same. Now we're gonna see several scenes here because there's several different people that are gonna kind of unfold as the story goes forward and through these verses at the end of chapter one. And we're going to see this theme of our 3. Now, just real quick, in case you're comparing, if you've read John and you compare it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you see something that we're reading in here, the call to these disciples is going to sound different here than what you've read in the other Gospels, what we call the Synoptic Gospels. Don't let that trouble you. This is not a conflict. It's not two different you know, problems here that are conflicting with each other. Rather, what John is focusing on here, what we're seeing here, is the call to be followers of Jesus, the call to be his disciples, what you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a call to be the apostles. And so it's two different calls. So if you read what well, reading today and you hear about Peter's call, and you're like, but that doesn't sound like what it says in Luke about Peter's call. It's two different calls. This is the initial call to associate with Jesus, to follow him. What you have in the other gospels is the call to be an apostle. So just make sure that's clear in your thinking in case there's any confusion there. But where our story begins here is with Andrew and John. Our first several verses that we just read was about them. So how do we know that? Because if you look in verse 35, it just says the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Well, how do we know that it was two of his disciples? Well, we talked about Wednesday night. If you're here with us for how to understand the Bible context, if you're not sure what it is. Go to context and look around at it. So you go down a few verses to verse 40. So it's in verse 41 of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we're told clearly here that one of these two who hears is Andrew, but it doesn't tell us the other name. So how do we know it's John? Well, if you think about it, and I mentioned this in our overview week several weeks ago, is John's recording all this great detail for us about the life of Jesus. If he just tells us this is Andrew, he doesn't tell the other person. There's either a big omission here, or perhaps, and I believe what's going on here, is John the Apostle, like John the Baptist, wanted to make much of Christ, not of himself. And so John the Apostle wrote this gospel, never refers to himself by name in this gospel. He's either just an unknown person here, never by name, or he's a disciple whom Jesus loved. He's trying to draw attention away from himself to Christ. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He just simply refers to Andrew and someone else. And that someone else is the author of this book, John, we believe here. So what happens to Andrew and John here? Look in verses 35 and 36. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God this is the next day. Like I mentioned, this is day three of this first week of Jesus going public. And it continues with John the Baptist trying to exalt Christ. You notice the first thing he does when he sees Jesus walking by, he says, Behold, look, pay attention, take notice of this. And what's he say, Take notice of the Lamb of God. And like I mentioned last week, if you were here, we love the phrase the Lamb of God. And we talk about it, we sing about it, but it only appears two times in Scripture. Where we saw last week in the earlier verses of John 1, And here, it's the only two places you find this. And Lamb of God, if you remember, is a reference back to all the Old Testament sacrifices and to particularly the Passover and as the blood would flow and the innocent animals were sacrificed. That was all a foreshadowing of the one who would come and be the once and for all sacrifice to deal with the sin of the world. Jesus is that person. Well, the disciples hear John say this. Look in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, notice something here. John the Baptist never tells his disciples, this is the Lamb of God, go follow him. All he says is, this is the Lamb of God. And immediately, Andrew and John the Apostle follow him. Why? Well, John the Baptist's ministry was so forward-thinking, it was so about exalting Christ, it was so not about himself, he had basically taught his disciples so well that once Jesus the Messiah appears and he simply says, there he is, his disciples know what to do. Because John the Baptist is not there making a name for himself. When his disciples realize that this is the Messiah, they literally, it says there, they follow him. Now, in one sense, they literally do follow him. In the first century, disciples followed the masters. They didn't go get on Facebook and follow their blogs or anything, right? They literally, oh, they see him walking, they walk down the dirt road after him. So there is a literal sense of following here, but there's more to it than that when these first two follow Jesus. The verb that's used here to follow indicates a once-and-for-all completed action. When when they followed Jesus, it wasn't like this kind of curiosity. I just want to go see what this guy's about. This is like a sold out once-and-for-all. I'm going to follow him the rest of my days. I am in with him now. I'm giving my all to him. Well, Jesus sees them following him there, and he asks a question in verse 38. Verse 38 says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Well, friends, the whole point of this book is telling us that Jesus is God— Jesus is God. He knows everything. Why would Jesus ask that question? What are you seeking? Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows what's in your heart and my heart right now. Jesus knows everything. So why would he ask the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? Well, Jesus doesn't let us get away with kind of a cursory glance of him. Jesus demands our absolute allegiance, our absolute obedience, our absolute worship, and so he's basically kind of, if you want to use the idiom, throwing the ball in their court. He is making them articulate what they really want. He's making them verbalize what they really are after and wanting to follow him. And friends, that question should be a question that burns in our hearts and our minds as well. What are you seeking? Because friends, it's easy for us to go through motions. And so even as we gather on a Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., going through our normal routine as we gather at Gateway, that the question of Jesus still comes to us. What are you seeking? What do you want? What are you looking for as you look towards this Jesus? What is it that you are after? Well, Andrew and John give an answer, and it seems like a little bit of a strange answer to us in our culture today. In verse 38, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Someone asks you, what do you want? Do you ask them, where do you live? I mean, that's not our normal response. What are they saying here in this that we don't get in our culture here? They answer by first rabbi. Rabbi literally means my great one. It was a very customary greeting for a student to his master. Even the title of saying rabbi, they're saying we're the student, you're the master, teach us. So even the title itself conveys the sense that they are following him. But then they ask him, where do you live? They're basically saying we want more than a roadside conversation here. We want to know more than just what you can tell us in five minutes standing here on the side of the road. We're following you. We're going wherever you go. You better tell us what's next because we're in with you. Is kind of the idea of what they're they're asking for. They're wanting to learn from him, and that's exactly what happens in verse 39. He Jesus said to them, "Come and you will see." So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. That was probably about 4 p.m. the way they measured time at that time. And friends, this is one of those places to where, you know, God's given us everything we know. But, oh, I wish there was more right there. They spent the day with Jesus. What did he tell them? Oh, I so wish we knew, but he didn't tell us that. He's given us what we need. But all we know is they followed him. They spent the day with him. Jesus talked to them about something through this time. And they believe in him. They follow him. But don't miss this. They invite others to do the same. And that now brings Peter into the story, look at verses 40 and 41. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So Andrew has, has seen Jesus. He's been discipled by John the Baptist. John says, here is the Lamb of God. He knows to follow. He goes, spends an afternoon evening with Jesus. First thing he does when he leaves is go to seminary. Go to Bible college. No. Go write a blog about it. I guess in their days, then you scroll about it. Go get his own disciples. No. The first thing he does is he goes and finds his biological brother. We have found the Messiah on this. He finds him. And notice when he goes, it's not small. Talk. It's like, hey, bro, how'd that sports game go last night? Hey, finally, I found something interesting. It, no, he cuts to the chase here. He finds his own biological brother and says, we have found the Messiah. Messiah was a Hebrew term. The Greek equivalent is Christ. Messiah or Christ are really comparable words. They both mean the anointed one. They both reference this Old Testament expectation of someone in the line of David who would come and save God's people. But notice something interesting here. He doesn't say, I have found the Messiah. Again, this is, If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about cultural differences. The Bible's written in a very communal culture time. We're a very individualistic society. He doesn't say, I have found the Messiah, which is how probably most of us today would answer. He says, we have found the Messiah. He already is identifying himself with the people of God. Not an individual in relationship with Jesus. He's identifying himself as a part of the people of God who are already following after him. He says, we have found the Messiah. But he doesn't stop just with information. Look back at verse 42, the first few words. He brought him, this is Andrew brought his brother Peter, or Simon at this time, to Jesus. He doesn't say, here's the information, do with it what you want. He compels him to come. He brings him to Jesus. And Jesus receives him. And it's fascinating what Jesus does in verse 42. Look back. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So first of all, notice it says that Jesus looked at him. The word looked in the, in the Greek means to gaze intently. Now, can you imagine this scene? Simon's been told by his brother, we found the Messiah. We don't know what that interchange looked like after that, but he follows Andrew to go meet Jesus. He walks in and says, Jesus just looked at him. I mean, can you imagine you are looking in the eyes of your creator? Jesus just gazing, staring at him. At least a sometime gaze. I don't know how long it was, but it was an intent gaze. And then Jesus opens his mouth and says, So you are Simon, son of John. You shall now be called Cephas, which means Peter. The very first thing he says to him is not, Hey, how are you? It's I'm changing your name. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, in antiquity time, naming meant you had authority. Jesus was pronouncing his authority, his right as God, as creator, to change Simon's name. But even more than that, In this time, names carried a lot of connotation with it. We kind of do this in our culture with kids to a degree. There's intentionality in naming our kids. That's why there can be some exceptions, but I doubt any of you probably named your children Judas because there's associations with names. There's reasons we pick the names for our kids that we do because there's some hope that we have that goes with that name that we we pray will carry on with our children. Well, in this day and age, that was what happened as well. People would name their kids with a longing for their kids to fulfill that role. But when Jesus changed the name, he doesn't do it with a hope and a longing that Peter's going to become something. He does because that is certainly what Peter's going to become. And he's just simply saying, this is who you're going to be and I'm making you into that. He changes his name to Cephas or Peter, both of which mean rock. So Jesus is just saying, I'm predicting one day that if you get this name by the power of your positive thinking, you're going to become this. Jesus is saying, listen, I am your creator. I have the right to call you what I want to call you. You're going to become a rock in my kingdom, a rock for the church. You're going to be a rock in the advancement of my kingdom, and I'm going to make that of you. And so Jesus names him with this, not so much emphasis on so much what the name itself is, but what Jesus is going to call him and make him into. Now, before we move on, I know we're not in the text, but just two words of application, I think, are bare mentioning right here. The first is, friends, if we are in Christ... I'd encourage you this week to think about what Jesus has already called you and named you. If you look at Scripture, He says that if you're in Christ, you're holy. If you're in Christ, you're loved. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. If you're in Christ, you're part of a people. You're part of a kingdom of God. You're part of you know, being a group of priests unto the Lord. He didn't name you that hoping that you're going to live that way. He names you that because He is certainly making you into that as He transforms you more and more to be like Christ realize he's doing the same thing in our life by what he has said about us as well. It's not predictive. It's what he is working in sanctification to make us. But the second point of application out of this first part of this text for us is about Andrew. Because any time you see Andrew in the Bible, he's never preaching. In fact, you don't, you'll never find a sermon from Andrew in the Bible. You don't see Andrew, the one who brought Simon to Jesus. You don't ever see Andrew even doing great acts of leadership. The only time Andrew appears in the Bible, he's doing one thing. He's bringing people to Jesus. Every time Andrew appears in the Bible, he's simply doing the one thing, he's bringing people to Jesus. And that's what he did with bringing Simon Peter to Jesus here. Andrew is the one who brought the man that God would use to build the church, to become a great apostle, to write part of our New Testament. The one who would become a great evangelist in Acts was brought to Jesus by the faithful witness of Andrew. I love it. One writer said, Andrew did great greatest service to the church as any man ever did. And so let's not minimize the role Andrew played in this, but what an example for us to be faithful. God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign in drawing, but he calls us to be involved in his work. And friends, we don't only not know what God's going to do in our life, but we don't know what God's going to do in the life of the people that we are used by the Lord to bring to him. And so I just encourage you this week, as you are looking around you and seeing people around you who need the gospel, labor faithfully like Andrew did, because we never know what God might not only do through us, but through them as well. So back to the text. So far in the text, we've seen that those who believe in Jesus follow him and invite others to do the same. We saw this with Andrew, this with John, and with Peter. Our story continues in verse 43 with Philip, and we'll see the same pattern again. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip is from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Well, here, notice something that Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus decides. He resolves. To go to this area, for what purpose specifically, to find Philip? Now, we know very little about Philip. All we know about Philip is everywhere he appears in the Bible, he's not sure what to do, basically. Every time Philip appears, he's, he's not your bull, go get him, like Peter is. He's very uncertain about what should be done in this. And all this shows us about Philip is that basically he was a very ordinary man. Nothing that would, in our minds, set him apart as a leader to be one of the early followers. But Christ makes it a point to seek him out. Because Christ doesn't look on the outward appearance. Christ has a plan and is going to use Philip for his kingdom. And he simply does what he says to everyone else. Follow me. Like I mentioned earlier, follow here is present tense. That means follow and keep on following. It's not like just come walk after me and do what you want to do. The decision to follow Christ is not I'm going to pray the prayer so I don't go to hell. But it's rather I'm going to yield my life for the rest of my life and surrender to him as Lord, to follow him as my master, as my boss. It's a lifetime commitment that Christ is calling, calling him to. And so, and so here he, Philip, believes in Jesus, follows him, and like the others, he's going to invite others to do the same. And that leads us to the last person in today's account, and that is Nathaniel in verse 45. So look at verse 45. There is one of the first things here that Philip does once he follows Jesus. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So you can notice the pattern. He speaks out his friends. He meets Jesus he finds the one he's longing for. First thing he does, he goes and finds someone else he knows, his friend who needs Jesus as well. He basically is going to say something similar to what Andrew said. We found the Messiah. He's just going to do it in different terms. He says there in verse 45, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He's, just, he's defining Christ being the Messiah in terms of prophecy. And notice here, Philip also does what Andrew did. We have found the Messiah. This is pretty quick. Christ has just called him, and immediately he's not identified his relationship with Christ. He's put himself in terms of God's people. We collectively have found him. It's another example of group identity in the Scriptures. Well, we don't know much about Nathaniel either, so sorry if you're coming in and wanting to know a lot about these people. We don't know a lot about Philip and not a lot about Nathaniel as well. Nathaniel only appears here in John. In fact, he doesn't appear in the other Gospels which has led some to speculate, and I think they may be on the right track, that Nathanael was perhaps a secondary name for this individual. The name Nathanael means God has given. So it's more like a title-type name. And so what a lot of people speculate, because if you look that Nathanael not mentioned anywhere else with the apostles, the disciples, you don't see him in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but you see people in Matthew, Mark, and Luke who are not mentioned here, that perhaps he had a second name. Some people think it might have been Matthew. Most people sentient to think this would actually be Bartholomew. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the Synoptic Gospels, There's a guy named Bartholomew, and every time you see Bartholomew, he's associated with Philip, which would make us inclined to believe that perhaps his name was something like Bartholomew Nathaniel. Nathaniel was Bartholomew, but went by both names. We we do not know for sure on that. But what we do know for sure, he was a skeptic at first. He was not one who just immediately jumped in and following Jesus. Look at verse 46. After his friend Philip comes and says, we found the Messiah, look at what Nathaniel says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? you hear the skepticism in his voice on that one as, you, as you're reading the text here? What was going on here? It probably was not so much some type of prejudice as simply this. We'll see in another verse or two that he was a true Israelite. He understood Old Testament prophecies. He knew the longings for the Messiah to come. Nazareth was a town of about 2,000 people. Minuscule in terms of influence and reputation. And his mind, the Messiah who's going to come and save Israel... Why would he come from such an insignificant place? Surely he's going to come from a place with, with a Davidic heritage or something big happening. And his mind, because of the messianic expectation, how could the Messiah really come from this little insignificant town of 2,000 people? But notice what his friend Philip does. When Nathaniel kind of asks the skeptical question, can anything get come out of Nazareth? Philip's not like, you idiot, come on. Doesn't like beat him over the head. Come on, you're so dense. Why can't you get this? Like, there's no berating, there's no calling him names. It just simply just says, come and see. Man, what a great example because we all have people in our lives that we're trying to share Christ with and to not berate them but simply to, say, to invite them to come to see what Christ has done and is doing on that. And that's exactly what Nathanael does. Verse 47, he goes to him. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus says in him there's no deceit. There's no cunning. There's no guile. There's no trickery in him. That's In fact, what you see, though he's skeptical, he's willing to give Jesus a shot. And he comes to see in this. But it's interesting here because when Jesus basically welcomes Nathaniel and says, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, no guile, no trickery. Verse 48, Nathaniel doesn't say, that's not who I am. What are you talking about? His response is basically, you're spot on, Jesus. He said, how do you know me? Jesus says, you're an Israelite. You have no deceit in you. And he goes, how'd you know? And he basically is accepting what Christ has already said about him, which is fascinating because it again shows us that Christ can see into the heart of man on that. And Jesus answers this question, how do you know, with verse, also in verse 48. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now for some people start getting speculative here about what the fig tree symbolized and what he might have been doing under the fig tree. Well, that, that all misses the point. The point here is not the fig tree. The point is Jesus saw him when Jesus was not physically there. So now that remember, John is trying to help us see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And once again, he's showing us here that Jesus has supernatural knowledge. I mean, there's no way I can tell you when you walked in this morning. Like, hey, I saw you sitting at your kitchen table with your red cup of coffee, with your ESV Study Bible this morning. So you were gazing out the trees in your back. Yeah, I can't do that. I'm a man. But Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? I saw you. Just as you would be kind of freaked out if I came if, if you walked in this morning and I said, hey, I saw you a red cup of coffee this morning on your table while you're reading your study Bible, looking at the trees in here. But you'd be like, whoa, that's something's not right here. That's kind of Nathaniel. I mean, he realizes what's at stake here, that Jesus has seen this, that Jesus has supernatural knowledge here. And it's almost like he's struggling to answer. Look at verse 49. It's like he can phrase every, every name he can think of. Rabbi, son of God, king. Like, it's almost like he's trying to figure out how in the world do you respond to that. But don't miss in his response what it's showing. He just says that, Jesus, you are the king of Israel. And when Jesus sees him, the first thing he says is, you're a true Israelite. And basically, Nathaniel admits that. So he's already, he's already admitted under Christ that he is an Israelite. Now he's saying, Nathaniel's response says, you are the king of Israel. He's saying to Christ, you are, yes, I'm an Israelite, but you are my king. So don't miss that as he talks about Christ being king of Israel. It's a personal acceptance of Christ as well. And after he believes, look at what Jesus says in verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? You'll see greater things than these. So yes, this insight, the supernatural insight Jesus had, it was amazing. But there's even more amazing stuff happening. We get back to the Gospel of John in two weeks. We're going to be in John chapter 2. we have the first miracle, the turning of water to wine at Cana. That's going to be even more amazing. We're going to see all these miracles and things that show that Jesus is God. And these are all amazing, greater things. But there's something even greater than all those. And Christ turns that in verse 51. What is the greatest thing that Nathaniel is going to see? Look at verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, for us, this imagery loses a little bit of something. But first of all, in verse 51, the truly, truly, Christ's content is something important. He's literally saying, amen, amen, watch out, listen to this. I say to you, the you here is plural, so he's turning it not just to Nathaniel, but this is to all of his followers. Everyone who's listening, you listen. You all listen up. This will be, again, a place we can translate this, y'all, if you wanted to use a southern rendering of this. Truly, truly, I say to y'all, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is addressed to a wide audience here. What is he talking about here? Remember, Nathaniel was a true Israelite. Nathaniel was a true Jew. He's, what, what Jesus is referencing here is back to Genesis chapter 28. And if you go way back to Genesis 28, remember Jacob's ladder? We have a song that gets sung, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder, which is not theologically accurate, but just a good song overall. Um, But in Genesis chapter 28, this is what happens. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones on the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of the ladder reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So this is the, obviously the image when Jesus is referencing the ladder here. This is what Nathaniel and anyone else listening with Jewish background is going to think about. But notice there's a huge, huge change here that I think will unlock the meaning for us today. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The big changes in Genesis 28, there was a ladder that the angels were ascending and descending down. Now there is no ladder. What's in place a ladder is not a what, it's a who, it's Jesus. Jesus now stands as the ladder that the angels are descending and ascending on. And why is that significant? Jesus is saying, this is the greatest thing you're going to see. I am the new ladder. I am the link between earth and heaven. I am the only way for heaven now to be opened. And the word here saying the heavens opened, this is the, the, the tense that's used for the word open here in the Greek. is a tense that means, it's a perfect tense, that means it's going to be opened and always remain open. It's not like I'm just being open for today. So us 2,000 years later because what Jesus did coming as the ladder, the link to heaven and earth now, now heaven is still open for us some 2,000 years later because of what Christ has done. That is going to be the greatest thing that Nathaniel and all of these individuals will see. And so as we come to the end of John chapter 1, we're five days now into this week where Jesus is revealed. And in the first week, you now have five followers of Jesus. You have five followers as you begin his ministry here. And they've all come in different ways. Andrew and John came through the faithful preaching discipleship of John the Baptist simply just said, here's a Lamb of God and they knew what to do. Peter came because his brother witnessed to him. We saw Philip come because Jesus directly just called to him. And we saw Nathaniel come because Philip persuaded him to come they all believe and they all follow And if you as I mentioned they all have a role Inviting others That raises the question how did they know they were Supposed to do this Jesus has not yet taught them there to be fishers of men that comes in The apostolic call that we see in the other gospels How did they know there they to be fishers of men Well they just knew Friends when you have something great happen In your life do you keep it to yourself I mean, Think about it go back to Facebook And the way we follow people when you get that job You long for and pray for first thing you do is get on Facebook right and when couples get married, you'll see them going down, you know, they get out of the building, and they immediately start changing their Facebook status to married and posting pictures. Like, you know, when there's inherent joy, we want to share that with others. The joy has to be expressed, and that's exactly what the early followers did. You know, there's lots of ways to define evangelism, and this definition is far from complete. And, but I just love it. It said, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And that's really what's happened right here. These early disciples, I mean, they've been with Jesus one day. All they know is, oh, my goodness, I have found the Messiah. I am satisfied. My heart longing to see the Messiah is here. I can't keep it to myself. I've got to let others know as well. And that's exactly what they do. And so as we come to a close and before we come to the Lord's table for communion, I believe this text, like I told you early on in John, John calls for all sorts of questions for us to answer and calls for decisions from us to wrestle with these things. John was written that we might believe. And so the first question for us when we look through the end of John 1 is, do we believe? Do we believe that Jesus really is the Son of Man, the term he uses here? His favorite term is, is he really the Lamb of God is pronounced about him here as well? Is Jesus really the ladder, the one who links heaven to earth, who has opened the heavens so that we might know God? Do we really believe him? And if so, have we heard him say, follow me? He doesn't say pray a prayer and then go live like you want. He says, follow me. Follow me. Have we believed? And have we believed in such a way that our lives are characterized by following Him? And the question that Jesus asked of these first disciples of John and Andrew is a question I believe He asked us today. What are you seeking? Why are you here? Why are you involved with church? Why are you reading the Bible? Why are you doing all this stuff? What are you seeking? And for those of you who are able to answer that, yes, I'm seeking after you, Christ. Yes, Christ, I want to know you more. For those of you who are at that place... The follow-up question then for you is, who are you inviting on the journey as well? Who am I inviting on the journey as well? Because following Jesus, those who believe in Him, follow Him and invite others to do the same. Friends, if we really have experienced having our sins forgiven, we are people who are alienated from God, and we've been reconciled and made right because of the blood of the cross. If we've been given hope and a future, friends, there's joy in that. How can we keep that to ourself? When all around us at work and at school and in our neighborhoods are people who are hopeless and empty and we have been satisfied. So those are the questions I believe this text demands of us. But that also then leads us to, as we come to the Lord's table, to communion or the Lord's Supper. There's an image I want you to think about this morning as we come to the Lord's table. It's that of what we were just reading where Jesus connected from Genesis that he is a ladder. Jesus opened the, opened the way for us. To know God. He opened the heavens to us. He is now the ladder that we might know God. But if you remember from the story of Easter, Him opening the heavens did not come without a cost. For Jesus to be the ladder to link earth and heaven to open the heavens, it required His body being broken, His blood being shed. Because the Scripture is so clear without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why the whole Old Testament the sacrificial system of the killing of innocent animals and to have been there at the time when the people go to the temple and buy the innocent sheep and they would cut them and you see blood flowing through the streets. All that was showed that there had to be a blood payment for sin. Christ came to die in our place, to be the sacrifice so that we might be reconciled to God. For Him to be the ladder to open heaven for us came at a high cost. His body was broken, His blood was poured out that we might be reconciled to Him. And to help us understand that, God in His grace has given us communion or the Lord's Supper. This, is a, this was a this time when Jesus took the Passover with His disciples. Passover again was a celebration of when God had delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, with, when they killed the lamb and they put the, the blood on the doorposts, and the angel of death would pass over if He saw that and delivered them. And so Jesus was with His disciples one night taking the Passover. But he changed the meaning of it for us to help us understand that he is the Passover lamb now. The one who opens that way to heaven. First Corinthians 11 tells us, For I see from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. the Lord's table, I just want to remind us that this is a remembrance, like Christ said in 1 Corinthians 11. This is a chance for us to remember the cost that was paid that we might be reconciled to God for the heavens to be opened and for that ladder to be there, for Christ to be there so that we can be reconciled to God. It came at a cost. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we come and we, and we break the bread and we tear a piece of bread and we take to the cup, this reminds us of the body of Christ that was broken on our behalf, it reminds us of the blood that was spilled for him. So I just encourage you in just a moment as we, as we receive the Lord's Supper, before you take it, take a moment to reflect on what Christ has done. This is only for those who are in Christ. If you're still wondering who this Jesus is, we invite you to watch and to observe. But this is, this is for God's people. If you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you followed Him, this is for you. There's no shame in staying in your seat if you need to just think about these things or just do business with God and talk to God this morning. But if you are in Christ, if you followed Him, we invite you to come to take of the bread, to take of the cup. And I encourage you when you return to your seat to, to, to look at it for a minute, to think about it, to remember what, it's, what it symbolizes and, and to thank God that Jesus is that ladder now that we might be reconciled to God, that the heavens have been opened because of what he did. I'd encourage you to say a prayer where you are to thank God for the sacrifices made for you to have forgiveness of your sins and take it with thanksgiving in your heart. Some of our deacons are going to come now and they're going to help, observe, help us to observe the Lord's Supper. They're going to have you come forward in sections to receive the bread and the cup as you come down the center aisle and return to your seat. They, they will direct you on that. And for those with dietary needs, we do have gluten-free um, bread up here for you as well. While, they're, um, while others are coming, I'd encourage you to have a prayerful spirit and to reflect on what Christ has done. His body was broken for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's rejoice in the salvation we have in Christ now.